Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I want to pray. Father, we thank you for this day, Lord, under your creation. God, we never knew we'd be outside, but that was your plan. And we're just so honored to be here. Lord, we're also aware of states where churches are not allowed to meet. Churches are meeting, God. There's, there's Supreme Court decisions going down. God, you know all things. You are the God of freedom and justice. So, Lord, be with pastors as they make decisions. Um, we pray for our leaders. We pray for the church, God. You're thinning things out. There's a remnant, Lord, in our land. And, Lord, I pray that we would fast, pray, so we would find your mind in all of this. God, thank you for everyone on this lawn, everyone watching through live stream. God, we want to know your will. We want to serve you, like David in our generation, in the allotted time that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. So like we saw in the bumper video, we are in a series called Being Human. This is our third week of six weeks where we're looking at the life of King David, this remarkable man. You read Samuel Kings, the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, and David's bigger than life. I'll be honest. Uh, he's a man where I think, okay, David's like this celebrity. He's got all these gifts and talents. He loves God with all his heart. And then there's me, right? Like, like how do I ascribe to be like David? He's just this towering figure outside of Jesus. No one gets more press in the Scripture. And yet for all of David's exploits, and we're going to look at them all in this series. And by the way, my son Mike will be preaching the next two weeks. I know you're looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Mike has been preparing for a long time. He's going to bring you some great stuff. But we're going to look at all David's exploits, but I've been thinking, you know, what's the supreme value that David adds to us? Why did the Holy Spirit include so much about his life in Scripture? You read Samuel, you read Kings, you read the book of Psalms, and, and really what we've discovered is David teaches us what it's like to be human. And again, you might think, well, how can David teach us like that? He, he's so far removed from us. And it's just one word, the Psalms, the Psalms of David. Had David not journaled his feelings and his relationship with God, you know, the church would have a giant void. The Psalms give us a peek into the soul of a man who walked with God, and that's what it means to be human. David in the Psalms gives us a wide range of what life is all about. Everybody know that life is all about seasons? Everybody on this lawn is in a season. Some of you are in the spring season of your life or your spiritual journey. Some of you are in the summer. Some are in the fall. Some are in the winter season. We go through seasons. And David teaches us what it means to navigate seasons. Listen to what he writes in Psalm 6.6. He said, I'm weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drown my couch with tears. Really? David, this warrior king, this man, men don't cry. Men don't cry in any culture. David cries himself to sleep in the journey of life. How many of us cry ourselves to sleep? We didn't get the job we wanted. Can't get pregnant. We got older kids. Those of you with younger kids, you'll find out what that means later. Some of you are crying about younger kids. We're all crying about something. David's honest. Even in this relationship with God, where I love God and I serve God, he cries himself to sleep. How about Psalm 11, 1 to 3? David gets a little whiny. You ever get a little whiny with God? He said, in the Lord I put my trust. Here we go. 
God, I gave you my life. God, I serve you. I work in the cafe. I work in children's ministry. What's going on? How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to the mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on a string that they might shoot secretly at the upright in heart. David asked a question a lot of you are asking. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know, we're looking at our nation. A lot of people are saying, the foundations are being destroyed. What do we do? David cries out to God. Now, he's also the man who writes Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, right? He writes these majestic psalms. How about this psalm of lamentation? My days are gone up in smoke. You ever feel that way? My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is stricken like grass dried up. I'm too wasted to eat my bread. Because of my groaning, my bones stick to my skin. You ever hear that preached on on Sunday morning? You ever see that in a devotional? You ever see that on a TV program? See, David is showing us the complexity of this thing we call life, this messy, uh, difficult, complicated journey that we're all on, even with God. Now, you can't talk about David, you can't look at his life without looking at two people. His life, for all that he's done, is defined by two people. You know who they are. Goliath and Bathsheba. They couldn't be any different. Goliath is this nine-foot-three, hairy, trash-talking Philistine with iron technology. And Bathsheba is this wispy woman walking on a balcony. David defeats one giant, succumbs to the other. It's a remarkable story. With one stone in his slingshot, he slays Goliath, but he falls for this woman. Now I'm going to date myself a little, and some of you who are younger, you can Google this, and it'll be some learning. But uh, when I grew up, there was no ESPN. And so there was a game of the week for baseball, and football was on. But if you wanted to watch, like, offbeat sports, like swimming and diving and drag racing and all that, uh, you older folks know you had to turn in Saturdays to what? Wide world of sports, right? I could still hear the music. Jim McKay comes on. And whenever it came on, there was, there was just this opening that every, it's seared in our brains that athletes will know the thrill of victory and the agony of deceit, right? Now, what seared it into our brains was the image, right? The thrill of victory. Guy hits a walk-off grand slam. All the guys are coming. They didn't pour Gatorade back then over your head, but all the guys are cheering. And then the skier, right? I think it's on the screen. The skier is coming down, mangled, right, into a thousand pieces. David knew the thrill of victory. He slayed Goliath. And boy, did he know the agony of defeat, the agony of deceit. David didn't break any bones, but listen to what he says in Psalm 51. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. The David that slayed Goliath was young, bold, compassionate, full with zeal for God. He was a shepherd king on the ascent. The David that succumbed to Bathsheba was an older, wiser, more seasoned, and I'll argue more vulnerable man. As we learn from lessons in Goliath, there are lessons to learn from David's encounter with Bathsheba. 
Let's read some verses in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 1 said, It happened in the spring of the year, at a time when men go out to battle, that David sent Joab, that was his general, and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But notice that David remained at Jerusalem. He remained at the palace. And this is always the story, right? When someone sits across from you, they'll say, well, here's how it happened, right? Verse 2 says, it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful to behold. David went and inquired about this woman. Someone said, it's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers, took her. She came to him, lay with him, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and so she sent and told David, I'm with child. David sent to Joab, scheming now. Send for Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house with the gift of food, but David followed him. And Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said, why have you come from this journey? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? He says, I will not do this thing. Uh, he's an upright man. And he's like, I got men in battle. I can't come and enjoy life. And so David hatches another scheme. This is what sin does. He tells his general, he says, send Uriah in the battle. Put him right on the front lines. Put him there as long as it takes so he gets wiped out in battle. Not only does David commit adultery, he commits murder, and he becomes a liar. I've made a lot of observations about life. Uh, many observations over my Christian experience. And, man, if, if you don't feel this, that I, I don't know the life you're living. But probably the supreme thing I've learned is this. We've all committed ourselves to Christ. We love God. We love the scriptures. We want to know what God's doing. We have a vision for life. And then every day we wake up, you guys feel this? There's a downward pull in every one of us. It's like a magnet. It's like a magnet just pulling us downward towards decay, death, and even destruction. I don't know what it is. Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do, I don't want to do. A wretched man that I am. The book of Proverbs talks about laziness, right? That's like the physical manifestation. But there is spiritual entropy in all of us. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. So it's summer, and we live near the beach, and you know the drill, right? You go down to the beach, and it's the one escape where you just let the kids have at it, and you can get a little bit of adult relaxation. And when they get old enough, they can go in the water, right? And they go in the water, and you're like, ah, oh, now I can read the paper. That doesn't even exist anymore, but you you read a book or do whatever you like to do, right, for a couple minutes. But you're reading the paper, and then you peek, and what happened? They drifted two blocks, right? 
The writer of Hebrews says we have to be careful lest we drift. And the two things about drifting that I think we all understand is, number one, it's incremental, and it's sudden. There's one minute you wake up, and where you were, you're way over here. Some of you might feel that way today. Maybe you're a business guy or a business gal, and you had a heart for God, and you went in the business, and you were going to make money, and you were going to give it away, and you are going to lead people to Christ, and now... 10 or 15 years later, you're a half-hearted Christian. And life's all about power and money. Maybe you're a guy and a girl, you've been married for 15 years, but now you have talks in Starbucks or in a cubicle with members of the opposite sex that are way too long, and there's like this emotional tie. That's what drifting looks like. Uh, the drifter that I think we'll understand if you're reading David's life is Saul. You know, we have this tendency to look at Saul like he's this menacing, evil man. He didn't start that way. Saul started on a wonderful path. He was humble. He loved Israel. He was head and shoulders above the crowd. Samuel anoints him. And the slow, incremental drift in, in Saul's life, you know how it starts? It starts with patterns of disobedience. Listen to me. Here's how it works. No one wakes up and says, I'm not serving God anymore. What happens in the slow drift? is there's incremental disobedience. It's like three quarters I serve God, but the last quarter I reserve for my own understanding. Like, Pastor Bob, you don't understand. We have to live together because you don't know what it's like in this culture to pay two rents and two electric bills and yada, yada, yada. Or you don't understand. And, and it's this partial disobedience. Saul does it all the time. He's told to go kill the Amalekites, kill the king, kill everything that lives, all the cattle, all the people. And he spares the best. And Samuel says, what have you done? He said, you've disobeyed the Lord. He said, no, I've obeyed the Lord. Partial obedience. And then Samuel gives it in this line. To obey is better than sacrifice. You ever wonder why to obey is better than sacrifice? Sacrifice is what we all came out of, religion. I didn't know God. I never read the Bible, but every time Lent came around, I gave something up. It's not that hard to give something up for 40 days or a week or Fridays. What's hard is to live in relationship with the living God. It's easy to check the box. It's easy to go through the routine. Now, here's what God does. God always brings his grace into our life. It's always beautiful. It's always gentle. Samuel was God's grace. It's usually a person. Samuel comes. He's concerned for Saul. He tries to minister to Saul. One pattern that you'll notice in Saul's life, not only is there incremental disobedience, there's never a naming of his sin. He never names his sin. Therefore, he never repents. He calls for David. David, can you play music for me, right? Why? Because music feels good, doesn't it? That's why we sing worship. It's inspiring. And it says that God took the spirit away from him and gave him a distressing spirit. And right in the middle of worship, he like throws a spear at David. Because there's a third thing about the downward drift, and that is Saul never wanted repentance. He just wanted relief. He wanted relief from the crappy feeling that was inside. 
In our culture, that relief comes from drugs, alcohol, materialism, money. You can name a thousand things. By the end of Saul's life, he's a shell of a man. Maybe some of us are in this place today. I just want to stop here. Maybe life's choices or things that have been dealt to you have made you out of sync with God. Somewhere in the arc of life or the seasons of life, things just don't feel right. The beautiful thing is grace is available. The same grace that saved you is still available. Grace doesn't just save us. We burn grace to live. The New Testament said the grace of God has appeared not just to save us, but to teach us how to live righteously and soberly in this age. For Saul, there was Samuel. For David, there was Nathan. For you and me, there are people in in our lives, maybe today on this lawn, that would remind us that we've drifted. Now, when we look at David's drift, we see like another piece to the puzzle, and we really got to guard against this one. Listen, in a time when men would go to war, that's when our guys go to spring training, they would go to war, David stayed home. Sounds premeditated to me, doesn't it? David knows they're all going to war. He sends everybody out. Why? He's got something planned, right? This is how it works. What he plans is what we got to guard against. It's called isolation. You all know left to yourself, you're, you're not in a good place. You have to be honest about that, right? Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. If one falls, the other picks him up. So I got saved at a young age with my girlfriend who became my wife. I really don't know what it's like to be a bachelor in my 20s. And so I tell kids that. I, I don't know. I got married young. I don't, I don't know what it's like to be a Christian without another Christian with me. But I know this, we have to fight for community. That's why we had a community day yesterday. That's why we biked and swam and painted in the park and did all those things. That's why we take Bible tours and go on missions trips. Yes, there's work to be done, but left to ourselves, the downward spiral is deep. This is fresh in my mind because I taught premarital class this week. And in my premarital class, I teach the five threats of oneness. You know, oneness is God's plan for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They become one flesh. The devil's plan is isolation. And so I talk about the five threats to oneness, and number five is extramarital affairs. And I tell young couples, unless you have a plan for it not to happen, you're a candidate for it to happen. And I always use David as an example. If it happened to David, it can happen to you. If it happened to the man after God's own heart, it can happen to every one of us. David sends men into battle. Why? I've never heard this. This is my assumption. It might not even be true, so scratch it from the record if you don't like it. I think David was bored, restless, and tired. I really do. I think he had fought so many battles and climbed so many hills, he just wanted to stay home. So I'm a leader. David's a leader. I get it. There's times where I'm like, I don't want to lead another thing. I don't want to make one more decision. A few years ago, we rebooted our softball team, and I decided to coach softball. Come home one night, my wife's like, why are you doing this? 
She, I mean, what do you, uh, I said, well, I like softball, and there's community. She goes, well, couldn't you find something where you didn't have to lead? Like, you have, you have all these women, and now you got to make a lineup. you got to put them in position. you got to not play some people. You're right back in the place you always are, and at the end of the season, half of them aren't going to like you anymore. Leaders have three groups of people around them. Advocates, kind of cheer them on. Bystanders are like, all right, we're with you. And critics. What voice do you think we hear the most? Critics. Heard a guy at a leadership conference this week <laughs> really minister to me. He said, you know, the, the loudest boos come from the cheapest seats. Getting quiet in this Presbyterian church. The loudest booze. Remember the 700 level? The vet, the people that paid the least, complained the most. The problem is we listen to those voices the most. David's like, staying home. Proverbs 18 says, a man who isolates himself seeks his own destruction. Left to ourselves, the downward spiral is steep. I'm in a place in my life where I've seen the mighty fall. Church leaders, politicians, people I follow, people that have taught me half of what I know about leadership and church life, I've watched fall. I watch them lose ministries and families, careers, congregation, reputations, all due to moral failures. And you know what question always, it's the same every time. You look at your phone or you hear it, or a text comes in, and you're like, oh, no. First thing is shock. How could it happen to Joe? How could it happen to Sally? Could never happen to them. Surprise every single time. And sooner or later, we have to ask the question, why are we surprised? Why are we surprised when in the Bible, Abraham lies over and over again, Jacob deceives, Noah gets drunk, Samson has Delilah, David has Bathsheba. We're surprised because we don't think sin is really that bad. During the Holocaust, U.S. military intelligence and many in the administration heard there was a Holocaust going on in Germany. The reason they took no action is they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe a Western country on Christian values. It, it just can't happen. And we're trained to think it only happens in third world countries. Listen, Stalin killed his millions, Mao's his tens of millions. It's happened everywhere. The depths of sin knows no bounds. James says, let no man when he's tempted say, I'm tempted by God. For God doesn't tempt anyone with evil, nor can he be tempted. Himself, God didn't put Bathsheba on the roof. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desire and enticed. Desire conceives sin. Sin, when it's full grown, brings death. That leadership event I watched this week, virtual, is the largest leadership gathering in the world, Christian or non-Christian, emanates from a Christian church. The faculty, the influence is some of the greatest stuff I've seen in 20 years. I traveled there live for 20 years, took 53 different people there. It's amazing. The founder is no longer there, taken out by a moral failure. His name's not even mentioned. 
Today we're fighting a virus, listen, that has a 99.8% cure rate. Everybody hear that? If you contract the virus, and you probably won't, there's a 99.8% chance you'll be okay. Sin, sin has a 100% kill rate. I wonder if, I wonder if these leaders who were taken out, had they gone to the steps we're going to now, social distancing, masks, in the element of sin, would they have survived? Now, the one thing we can't do is settle for this. David's human. You know, we're in a series being human. Notice I said, humanity has ups and downs. Humanity has the capacity for sin. But don't ever think, because David was human, that his sin was okay. David never became the man he was. David was never the general he was. He never built a house for God. He never fulfilled what he set out to do. Yes, Acts says he served God in his generation and he died, but David was never the man he was meant to be. And whenever this happens, people come along and say, oh, no, 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 here's why it happened to David. He didn't have an accountability partner or he didn't have the right system in place. David had the right system. And look, everybody should have an accountability partner. But the depths of sin is so deep. Look what he does. He takes all this giftedness that God gave him, and he moves it towards a cover-up. You all know every system can be beat. You can have the best board, best system, and you can beat it. David beat it. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have all that. What I'm saying is when we set our mind to something, there's really never anything that's going to stop it. Now, once David sins, we see the grace of God. It's always available. There's no unpardonable sin. Nathan comes along. You see the gentleness of God here. Nathan doesn't come in the door and say, David, you sinned, and, you know, here's what we're going to do. Comes in, he said, David, we've got a problem. We've got a guy who has a hundred sheep, and we got a guy who has one ewe lamb, and a traveler came, and the guy with the hundred sheep took the one ewe lamb and gave it to the traveler. What should we do with the guy? David's like, what? First of all, the guy's got to restore fourfold. That, that was in the law, and he's got to die. Seems a little excessive for stealing a little sheep, doesn't it? Some psychologists think what you rail against is your personal sin. I don't know if it's true or not, but it looks like it's true from David. And then Nathan says, and I looked this up in Hebrew, you the man. That's where it comes from, serious. No, I'm joking. David, you're the man. And I don't know what David felt, but he doesn't react like Saul. Nathan said to David, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over, over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, listen to this. God said, I would have given you more. Oh, my gosh. God said, if that's not enough, I would have given you more. 
Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite by the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed people. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Behold, I will raise up adversary against you in your house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And, th and there's certainly a reaping from his sowing. But listen to this. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Adultery, murder was the death penalty. And Nathan said, David, you're not going to die. There's sowing and there's reaping, but you're not going to die. David's repentance is found, again, if we didn't have the Psalms, we'd be remiss. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to, notice, Old Testament, your loving kindness, your said." Talked about that. According to the multitude of your mercies, blot out my transgressions. He's telling God, is there any way you could forget this even happened? Cleanse me from my sin, not somebody else's sin. Not because I ate broccoli as a child. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin's always before me. You only have I sinned against. Goes on and on and on. Talks about his bones being broken, creating me a clean heart of God and a steadfast spirit, renewing me the joy of my salvation. It's possible. It's possible. Wherever you are in the arc of life today, you can all get right with God. We're not perfect. God's grace is available. We don't sin because there's grace. Romans 6 says, God forbid. But there is a God who is forgiving. The lesson every week in David is the same. Have you guys caught on yet? The supreme lesson that we learned today that sin is ravaging and there's drift and all that, but listen, the remedy is the same every week. I don't know if Mike Gags will give you this remedy, but I will. We don't need to mount up like David. Are you convinced of that? Do you ever wonder why we desire leaders to be perfect? Like, like, we're all searching for the perfect leader, right? The reason we're searching is because God put that in us. We want somebody pure, somebody make the right decision, somebody who cares. The reason why we're studying David is not that we would be like David, it's that we would know David's Lord. Psalm 2, the Lord said to my Lord, sit until I make the nations your footstool. It's one of the greatest prophecies in all scripture and the proof that the Bible's true. We don't need to be like David. We can be like him in a lot of ways. We need David's Lord. Because the last time I checked, he's the only one that looked sin in the eye and temptation in the eye and took every arrow and every fiery brand from the enemy and was victorious. And he turned to the thief on the cross and said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And he said to the woman caught in adultery, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. And on and on and on we see this outpouring of grace. And you know what the beautiful thing is? Nathan tells David, David, you're not going to die. Isn't that what Jesus told us? If you believe in me, that you'll never die, though you physically die, you shall live. You'll never die. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus changed the equation. He became the substitute. The wages of sin is still death. The thing is, he died that you might live.
That's the great hope of Christianity. Nobody on this lawn is perfect. Everybody has skeletons in their closet. Every redeemed person on this lawn is capable of anything. But the beautiful thing is we have a Savior who has poured his grace upon us. And I don't know about you, but the one thing David does teach me is that to be human is to be broken. That's all I want you to learn today. To be human is to be broken. Because somewhere in the journey, somewhere in life, we got to get on our knees and say, God, that's it. Kind of like when you got saved, I surrender. Some of you may have never done that. Maybe today's the day. That's what salvation is. I surrender. Enough of me. I need you. But it happens in the Christian life, too. David was broken. He did something Saul could never do. He named his sin. He repented. He was broken. Broken means I'm out of options. I'm not spinning anymore. I'm not rationalizing. I'm not coming up with excuses. I'm not blaming my situation or people anymore. I'm just broken before God. And the beautiful thing is he fixes and restores. Brokenness is a part of the Christian experience. Some of you might be broken right now. God, this is it. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Some of you are close, just not there. Every addict says, tomorrow I'll change. Pastor John Corson taught a message years ago, I'll never forget it. It was out of Exodus where the plague of the frogs had come on Egypt, there was frogs everywhere, frogs in their beds. I mean frogs like you wouldn't believe. And Moses comes and says, now will you let my people go? And you know what Pharaoh said? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Who in the world will want one more night with the frogs? He just wasn't broken. He never would be. Saul never broken. Some of you are flying high, but you've been broken or you will be broken. To be broken is to be human because there's a God that wants to restore and heal.